There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. The high drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzy Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for an inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road, the number two, Atlanta. Now, hit the road with your hosts, Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. Well, mostly. This show is going to be a little bit different. My name is Eric Cole. I'm be, I've been your host for however long we've been on, on the air, Road to Atlanta. I've been the deputy site manager at Talking Chop for the last two plus seasons now, and I've also been the minor league editor for the past six seasons or so now. Joining me on this very bizarre day for baseball is one Matt Powers. You can follow him on Twitter at MattPowers31. He has been kind of spearheading our draft coverage over the last few years. He's been working on the minor league side for along that same period of time as well. Matt, how are you, my friend? Not great. I mean, this has not been a great day for baseball in general today. I think uh, after the weekend, things as bad as they were at least looked like they'd be good for today, but that did not work out as expected. So I do want to talk about what we're the show is going to be about. We are yes, the, we've been getting tons of tweets and messages. When are we going to recap the the Braves draft class? And this is what that is what this show is going to be. It is going to be on kind of the back half of the show though, because the Talking Chop podcast. Um, it's probably going to happen in the next couple of days, I would imagine. Um, it kind of depends on what's going on with Brad's schedule. But the elephant in the room here is that it is now becoming abundantly clear that baseball in 2020 is very much in jeopardy. Over the weekend, the players kind of talked about how, you know, they were, how their feelings on what a season should look like. And they announced that they wanted MLB to make a decision. They got tired of listening to the league's offers about, you know, X number, of t- X number of percentages for X number of games, which ended up being the, sur- the same amount of dollars that they would for the shortened season at fully prorated, a fully prorated season. So the players finally said, Tell, let, please let us know how many games that the season's going to be. We're not going to negotiate anymore. You guys have the power to mandate it. You're clearly not listening to our offer. Just tell us how many games and then we'll be, and then show us and tell us when the report and we'll be there. That for us, seemed to be an indication that while the labor land landscape was not a particularly positive atmosphere, it at least seemed like that they were, the, the song and dance back and forth of the two sides, not really listening to each other's offers. The players think they just need making more money, period. The owners, they have a very set number of games they want to play, and there's, you know, debate as to why, as to why this is the case, and, you know, how much losses the, the play, owners would actually incur per game played, and all this other stuff. But it seemed like the players are fine, like, look, just set the, just set the, the, whatever it's going to be, we all thought it was going to be about a 50-game season, it was going to be a fully prorated, and it was just going to be done with. Instead, what happened is that Rob Manfred decided to release a statement and then go on national television and explain that there will be no baseball in 2020 unless players waive their right to any legal recourse, including filing a grievance against the league and its owners. Matt, I'm going to let you handle this first because I have some pretty strong thoughts about this and I've been kind of vocalizing those on Twitter during this whole process. What, what, what do you think about what's going on right now? It's it's pretty rough. Rob Manfred is a liar. I mean, look, I realize not everything is in his hands, but you don't come out on draft day to stir up hope among fans and say there will 100% be a season, make a definitive statement like that, and less than a week later, walk that back and say, well, we're not going to have a season unless this happens and this happens. You can't do that. You can't get fans' hopes up and then just crush them like that while promising something definitive and then saying, no, it's just not going to happen. Doing that just 
make something that already looked horrible in these negotiations look that much worse. And I don't think the players are completely blameless in this, but I think at least 85 to 95% of the blame in this whole situation is on the owner's side. So, and part of that goes to Manfred as well, in that 85 to 95% to me at least. I mean, the players, they probably could have been a little bit more willing to give, but you also don't expect them to give everything because they're the ones that are not making the significant amounts of money compared to the owners. They're the ones who had a contract agreed upon. They're the ones with the shorter life expectancy of earnings potentials. So in the end, they're also the ones that have less ability to turn the team into a revenue stream for themselves. I mean, just look what the owners got the other day for the playoffs for one league championship series, not even both. I mean, it's, it's just crazy what the owners and Manfred are doing at this point. So my position all along has been that the owners in no uncertain terms have not been negotiating in good faith. Every offer that they have offer put forth to the players has roughly, roughly, there's been very small steps towards the players in terms of total dollars, but it's been roughly for the same amount of money. All they've been doing is kind of lessening the number of games and in, maybe increasing the number of proration per game. And it's basically the same amount of money. They're just willing to do it in different ratios for different numbers of games. And it just became clear that the owners had no interest at all in moving from their position. Now, there's a... There's a few trains of thought here, right? Like, you know, the most optimistic one is that the owners know exactly how much money they need to make in order for a season to be feasible. And I think that in this climate and in this economy and with this much uncertainty that they would be absolutely certain of a number to where like their, their economic feasibility going forward, that this is the number in a week they cannot move off of it for two reasons. One, I do not think it's possible to generate that number. And two, I would question the existence of the number that has been posed simply because they have been completely unwilling to share and open their books with the Players Association in order to check those numbers. Because I imagine that if if these were like, this was like truth and this was not simply just a negotiating ploy of billionaires who own who who own teams that play quote unquote play a kid, kids game versus these millionaires who play who play a kids game for a living at the end of the day the optics for neither side looks good but it blows my mind that there is not even a sense of ur- of urgency by the owners to go look we need to be able to get this get people back on the field in order to save our sports viability going forward and not torpedo our revenue streams so we need to be acting in concert and coordinate with players and have them understand this is what the economics of baseball are. And if that means that the terms aren't as favorable to them, then so be it. Because ultimately, an entire generation of baseball fans could be lost if they can't get back on the field. Because if they lose this season and then there's a protracted work stoppage after after 2021 and those CBA negotiations go south, which what seems like it's going to happen. They're just going to lose a ton of, they're just going to lose generations of fans. And all of a sudden all these valuations of these teams are being worth so much money. That's just not going to be the case anymore. It's been so short-sighted. And what bothers me the most, I think, is that they have the audacity to look at the, when the players say, you know what, you just, look, you clearly want to play this amount of money and you don't want to play as many games because you're going to be taking a loss. Fine. Institute the number of games if you won from the beginning and the amount of money you want and tell us when to report. They have the audacity to then say, by the way, we're not going to have a season unless you waive the right to find any legal recourse against Major League Baseball. You want to know why they would ask for that? And you and I were talking a lot, a little of this about this before we aired. The only reason that Major League Baseball would hinge the entire season on making sure that players wouldn't be able to exercise those legal rights and extort that out of them in order for a baseball season to be played or one of two reasons. One, they so badly don't want to have agreements filed where they would be forced by a judge to open their books 
and it would cost them so much more much so much money that it's actually worth it to them to not have a season or two they are so certain that they would lose that grievance because of how they've conducted themselves over the course of these negotiations because they have not been acting in good faith and as a result it's worth it for them to actually just try to cancel a season and try to extort even more out of the players it is unfathomable to me that the commissioner of Major League Baseball actually had the gall to go on national television and state this as a position as though it was going to be anywhere close to engendering a certain amount of sympathy or understanding from any rational human being. Have the players been greedy? Have bad players been greedy at times? Yes. What, is it kind of mind-boggling to see a guy who plays a game make as much money as they do? Yes. But let's not forget that just because the, these owners are quote unquote businessmen and self-made men, don't take it away from the fact that they have been, they have, t- they're taking advantage of a crisis right now in order to make, to take away as many gains as is humanly possible from the players. Even though that whenever there have been greater gains in the past than they were planning on, if revenues have been up more than expected or something like that, they haven't been like, well, we'll go ahead and make sure that we share that with the players. They're asking the players to take a further burden than the one that was agreed upon in March. Now, in fairness, we we don't have a, a copy of that agreement, of that March agreement. And that's where a lot of this animosity, I think, stems from, is that the league is hell-bent on saying that the terms of this agreement were not operating under the assumption that there would not be fans in stadiums, and the players seem to think that it was. I'm inclined to think that it was the players because the reporting around the agreement, as I remember it, was that X amount of money was going to be given to the players, even if no games were played at all. Now, if you have any, before we kind of go, we, we swing to the break, do you have any last thoughts you want to share? Yeah, I mean, really, too. One thing that the owner's position really strikes me at is they're more worried about the money this year than they are about the long-term viability of this sport. The losses that they are going to experience this year by paying the players what they want just to get this on and maybe even get a small win out of this in the next CBA negotiations for letting the players have the money. So they, they probably would have gotten some of that money back in some way in the future. But the amount of money they're going to lose over the way they've pissed off the fans over this long term, it, it's like they haven't even considered. And if you want to look at the NHL 25 years ago or so, maybe even slightly longer, I don't know the exact year of the first of the NHL strikes and uh, stoppages of play. But the NHL 25 years ago was really strongly considered one of the four major sports. It was getting its fair amount of nights on ESPN for games, and it was getting a lot more coverage, a lot more publicity percentage-wise. I mean, obviously, less coverage then than there is now just because there's more ways to cover things. But I think it was a lot more respected as one of the big four sports across the general American public than it is now. And after some work stoppages for the NHL, they've fallen in and... Yeah, they're still considered one of the four major sports, but they're considered a distant fourth right now. Uh, it's like the owners don't see that, didn't see that, and can't imagine that happening to baseball, despite the fact that everywhere you look, fans are angry. There are plenty of fans that are talking about not coming back and not having any interest, even if they were to have returned in this last week, just because of how pissed off they were over these negotiations. The thing that bothers me the most, I think, at the end of the day, is that it does not feel like – and this – I feel partially about the Tony Clark and the head of the Players Association too, but largely when you put a labor attorney in charge of an entire baseball, an, an entire sports league, it becomes abundantly clear that his sole mission is to beat the players – to win and to make the owners money. Now, ostensibly, that may be, quote-unquote, his job description, but there's an implied health of the league and health of the game requirement of that job. And when you put a poison pill, and you just put it out there, and you say, we do not want the players to have the right to 
try to seek legal recourse against us because we do we do not want the grievance to be filed. They don't even want the grievance filed. It's not that they, they wouldn't fight it in court. We all know there'd be a fight over it. We all know there there would be court proceedings over it. They do not even want you to have the, the these players to have the right to file a grievance. And it's maybe we don't know if it's not if it's just over the salary issue, whether it be health and safety protocols, whether or not if the if the league does not live up to its side of the agreements in terms of health and safety, and a player wants to try to sue the league or see, again seek some so whatever legal recourse that may be. We don't know if this waiver would cover that. We don't know if this would cover them making further alterations to future agreements regarding salaries or draft orders or the playoff seating or the playoff format or revenue st- or or revenue sharing or anything like that. We don't know exactly what this is, but it sounds an awful lot like a blanket look. We don't want to take any legal responsibility for what happens in 2020. And a lot of it feels like that they would be worried that they would lose. And a lot of it just feels like extortion. Like the, it's trying to make the players make the hard choice and give up everything. And again, they need to have people in charge of baseball that want baseball to thrive. You can't be having a guy whose sole mission in life is to try to beat players into submission. And again, on the player side, this I mean, look, Tony Clark has made nothing out of, has made big hay out of nothing before. And he does not sound as though he is interested in having discussions with the owners a lot of times, which again, maybe have created this lack of communication between the two sides, or at least contributed to it. He certainly has not helped his own cause in a lot of cases. But what frustrates me is that at the very least, he seems like he's working towards the health of players and he's working towards trying to get people back on the field. The players are the only ones that have put, have made changes in their proposals and have actually said, just tell us the date when we report and we'll be there. The owners have done everything in their power to stall. And that might be what the case is. Maybe they're trying to stall things long enough to where once a shortened season ends up having to be declared, it helps their case that they tried in good faith to make those negotiations happens happen, which would help them in a future grievance. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. And, but that's not good for the game either. Ultimately, this comes down to corporate ownership and the league's office kowtowing to the financial big money aspects of this sport and not the health of the sport long term and its viability long term. They're managing this company like they know it's going to die in five years. And they need to extract as much as humanly possible out of it now. But I think that's all we've got. That's pretty much all we can muster, I think, on this labor situation. I'm sure that when the Talking Shop podcast happens, there's going to be a certain amount of discussion about that, and I'm sure I'll be chiming in on that too. But I did want to get my thoughts out there, and I know Matt wanted to share his too because we were both very frustrated with the current state of things today. Uh, we're going to take a short break to listen to some words from our sponsors, and after that, we're going to get to the actual fun stuff, which is going to be talking about this, the draft that happened just past, this past week. So stay tuned. Okay, guys, and we're back. So we've already had one show where we talked about the Braves' first round pick. Uh, make sure you look on the talking the stream for Talking Shop. There is an episode from last week where Matt and I got got on here late at night, and we spent much longer talking about Jared Schuster than I think both of us planned on. Um, so if you want to kind of get caught up on our really in depth thoughts on him, make sure you listen to that episode. We are going to talk to him a little bit about it here in the context of the entire class. So the the twenty twenty draft happened last week. There was a total of five rounds. The Braves had a total of four picks. They would have gained a pick for losing Josh Donaldson to free agency to the Twins, but they lost two picks, which meant a a net total of one one lost pick, and that meant that they didn't have a second round pick this year. The four players they picked are Jared Schuster, who was a pitcher out of Wake Forest, Jesse Franklin, an outfielder from University of Michigan, Spencer Strider, a pitcher out of Clemson, and Bryce Elder, a pitcher out of Texas. Before we kind of get into the, these, I know that Matt's been kind of chomping at the bit to talk very specifically about these guys. Overall, what is your kind of your general grade and thought on the class, Matt? Just a solid B. I think the draft was fine, but it just lacked something. It what it really lacked was a high upside pick because I well. Most of these picks 
each one of them I like, and there's a reason to like each one of them. There's just not any upside. There's not any true youth brought in. And when I say youth, I'm talking about guys that are going to help fill in the low minors, which are the part of the minors that especially need to be filled in right now because the international sanctions have really, really thinned out the low minors. I mean, the last year's draft really helped to start to replenish it, but we needed to add more. And you could have added some of the upper-level minor league-type talent through the undrafted free agency, which we'll talk about a little bit as well. But you're not going to get that low minors type of player through the undrafted free agency part. I mean, it's true that a couple high school players have signed, but that's the rare situation, and it, it's just not happening often enough to even count on a one per organization on average to be signing. So you're not going to be getting those guys here. So we didn't really see that upside guy. We didn't really see the young players added in. But you can't really complain too much about any of the players. And I, I would like to see the exact financials come in because I do think there might have been some money left over to play with. But I think having a couple guys go just before the Braves picked in a couple different rounds affected draft strategy a bit. I mean, we talked about this last week, but it was pretty obvious Nick Bitskov was going to be the pick at 25 until he went to 24. And then we didn't pick in the second round, which probably would have netted us another very good player. But the third round pick, we had a couple other guys that I think we were after in some way. Uh, where it, things just didn't work out and a couple players we really wanted, I believe, and they got close to us, just didn't quite drop enough. And I'm talking about uh former University of Georgia star, Cole Wilcox, who was drafted by the Padres just before we came up. I think he was, I know he was going to be at least considering the Braves, probably at a lesser rate, well, it would have definitely had to have been at a lesser rate than the Padres because the Padres had a lot more money to play with than what the Braves did, which only makes some sense. Ian Wilcox is a Georgia kid and would have been taking a hometown discount to play for his favorite team growing up. And that's a sensible assumption that he was willing to take some kind of a deal. It also is an assumption on my end that to make that deal happen you don't see the rest of the picks because that even if he was willing to take a discount that would have needed money to come from some of the further picks in the draft I also think the Braves would have were interested in uh, Blaze Jordan the Mississippi prep slugging bat but he went to Boston just before the Braves came up he also would have been an overslot deal I don't think he would have been quite as expensive as Wilcox, but I do think he would have cost quite a bit of money. Uh, those guys just didn't get down into the position where we could have made that happen. All three of them, including Bitsko, uh, two prep guys, one college guy, and things just didn't really work out to add the upside. But you look at the guys that were added on day two, and we'll start with Jesse Franklin, who the Michigan outfielder, who's big, athletic, has some power, has the ability to hit for average, but hasn't done both average and power at the same time. Uh, coming into the year, this guy was a top 50 pick. I mean, he could have even gone slightly higher than that with the breakout season this year, a true breakout season. Uh, he led Michigan to a slightly surprising run to the College World Series finale last year against Vanderbilt, a much more talented Vanderbilt team, and they came fairly close to upsetting Vanderbilt and actually taking home the championship. He had a very strong gear, hit for some power, went to the Cape, and did a fairly good job overall, hit for a pretty good average, but he just showed no power in the Cape, which is what I'm talking about with the average and the power. 
he slugged under 400 in the Cape. I mean, obviously, we're talking a small sample size. I'm not looking at the numbers off the top of my head. I want to say it was something around 21 games that he played there last summer. But it was definitely a sub-400 slugging percentage, I think 380s or 390s. But he did hit over 300 against the better college competition. Now, it's easier for a hitter to have success in the Cape than it is for a pitcher just because I think the talent for hitting in the Cape is uh, a little bit more of an advantage than the talent that the pitching has to face. So taking that into consideration, the skiing accident that he had this year was going to keep him out of, off the top of my head, six to eight weeks. And the season didn't go six to eight weeks, so he didn't actually get a chance to play. It was a collarbone injury. No long-term effects, but uh, at the same time, a questionable decision because your top 50 pick, you're about to make possibly millions of dollars in six months or so at that point, even less. Because I think this happened uh, just days before the season, if not maybe a week before the start of the season. So you do question, what are you doing out there when you're about to change your life in a couple of months? You you don't want to take any unnecessary risks. And here he is, obviously being a kid and doing something that he found fun. And it, it cost him. It cost him pretty big. Um, I have a feeling based on what his pre-draft asking price was, he was about a slot pick or so. Uh, guy that I think is probably a left fielder might get a look in center field because he has some speed. He's more of a better runner underway than he is to start up. He doesn't really have the arm to play right, even though he's athletic enough to play right. So he's kind of limited to center and left. I don't think he's going to end up in center. I think the Braves might want to work with him on the swing, maybe try to tweak the swing, the um, plate discipline a little bit, and see if they can find a way to combine his ability to hit for average and power. I mean, the guy has all the tools to be just a regular big leaguer for, for a long time. He might not be a cleanup type of hitter, but he strikes me as a guy who can be a and this might draw some negative uh, comments based on how this guy is seen by Braves fans, but he could be a Nick Markakis type of player as a hitter, not comparing their overall Send games. Send your hate tweets to at Matt Powers 31. <laughs> but Nick Markakis is a good, solid professional hitter, uh, and I think that a guy like Franklin could end up having that kind of career maybe a little bit more power. Obviously, he's going to need to work on that first before that power and the average coming games, but he could be a good six hitter. Now, remember, before Marquez got to Atlanta, his best years did come in Baltimore, so it's not like we're talking Atlanta Marquez here. We're talking about Nick Marquez as a whole instead of just the Atlanta older version of him. And I think he could have a similar type of career as a hitter. I don't think he brings as much value defensively as Marquez, and obviously he's not going to be a right fielder, but I think he could have that kind of career. I'm going to be honest with you, Matt. If you don't think that he brings as much defensive value as Nick Marquez, Well, I'm talking Nick Nick Marquez, Baltimore, when Nick Marquez was considered an excellent fielder, I should say, there. But I'm talking whole career uh, Marquez. I I pray for your Twitter mentions, sir. I'm just – Pop it in. Okay, carry on. Continue on with the next guy. Um, so the next pick came completely off my board. He's a guy that I did not even, and I told Eric that night, I didn't even bother paying attention to him this year, even though I knew who he was all along. Spencer Strider, the right-handed pitcher out of Clemson. Now, Strider was one of the biggest recruits in the country uh, three years ago at this point. Got into uh, the swingman role at Clemson as a freshman. Pitched a lot of innings. Got some starts. Pitched a little bit more out of the bullpen. And he pitched fairly well, but he did struggle with his command. And he looked like he was going to have a promising career. Then two years ago, well, last year, I should say. The year timing is messing me up there a little bit um, because of the missed year this year, basically. But last year, he 
missed the entire season because he needed Tommy John surgery. So this year was his first year back. He got uh, four starts. I think it was 12 and a third, 12 and two-thirds innings that he ended up pitching off the top of my head. And he looked good overall, but he looked like a guy that was not all the way back, which, I mean, you're 12 innings back after you're Tommy John, of course you're not going to be all the way back and look like what you should be at that point because you're still trying to figure everything out. Your secondaries take more time to come back than just your fastball. But um, he's got a live arm. He's got a lot of potential. I mean, this was one of the elite, elite recruits in the country three years ago. So the Braves saw something in him, but I thought he was a guy that has a lot more to gain personally by going back to Clemson, proving that he is the guy that he was three years ago and trying to make more money next year. So I didn't really personally consider him in this draft, even though I knew there was some chance that he would go because because of the shortened draft format and him having more upside in a draft next year. I thought it's a pretty safe assumption that he was going to go back to school, but that didn't happen. Uh, what he projects as for the Braves, it's really hard to say because we haven't really seen him pitch much in a couple of years. And the little college action we did see, it was one where he struggled with command. But he's got two pitches that show promise. He's got a live arm. The, the command is an issue at, at times in the past. The delivery is not perfect. He might be a, more of a reliever because of that and the injury history. But there is potential for more out of him. He's definitely a guy that could benefit by being in the Braves organization with their history of developing arms. But he's also got serious reliever risk. So it's really tough to get a feel for exactly what he is when we haven't really seen a lot of him in a long time at this point. And even when he did two years ago, it was not mostly as a starter. So... He's a tough guy to really, really get a feel for. And I didn't really get a chance to rewatch his work this year, this weekend, because I was away for the weekend. But that's something that I was going to be looking to do, to watch those innings, as many of those innings he threw this year that I can um, in the next week or so. Um, then in the final round, we had a little bit extra money to play with. And... Instead of taking a high-ceiling young prep player, we took probably my personal favorite player in this draft, and Texas right-hander Bryce Elder, who I'm a big fan of Elder. He's a guy who I might be, he is what he is, but he might have a little bit more room to grow. I mean, he's a guy who came to baseball full-time fairly late. He wasn't even headed to Texas for the longest time as a recruit. He was actually a golfer who really started to pick up in baseball late in his senior year in high school and ended up getting to Texas on a baseball scholarship last minute. And he's been their ace for the last two years, all last year, and then including into this year. I think he's more of a guy that's going to get by pitching to contact with his sinker. But He's a guy that if he could add a little bit more, there's a chance he could be a little bit more than probably that number four or five starter that he'd be projected as. He's definitely a higher floor guy, a guy with great pitchability, a guy that I really like. But if he's able to add anything, and it's not going to be based on projection left on his body, it's going to be just that he's still a little bit behind where most college pitchers are at this point in their development, just because he hasn't been a full-time baseball player as long as them. So he would definitely be my personal favorite, and he was definitely a guy I enjoyed watching for the last two years at Texas. So I think that Matt did a really good job of breaking down kind of what each one of these guys are. Uh, and I'm not going to try to like relitigate that, because one, I'm... It, I guarantee you that Matt has watched far more of these guys than I have. Uh, so I'm definitely going to default to kind of his evaluations of all four of these players. But my general feeling is very similar to Matt's, is that this draft felt very safe. It felt, and you felt with each pick, it felt from like a draft 
of a team that just didn't have much bonus pool to play with. And in this particular case, the Braves were like one of the lowest bonus pools in the entire draft. It felt like that they were going to be outpositioned throughout the entire draft in terms of money, especially when it comes to – hold on one second. I'm going to try not to sneeze. Oh, goodness. That would have been bad, like right into a microphone. Um, so it would have been – it's, it was really unfortunate that it seemed like there was picks that were going to be made right before them that if like they had got, those guys had gotten to the Braves that maybe they were be willing to punt on a couple picks to try to make a, that pick work. But there were just teams that had a lot more money to play with, you know, whether it be San Diego, Baltimore was a problem, Boston saved some money with their first pick and they were further up in the draft, you know, so it kind of saved them a lot of money to do things that way. It just felt like a very constrained draft. I will say this though, and Matt and I have talked about this, uh, you know, elsewhere on, you know, earlier this, you know, since from the draft is that if Schuster and Franklin had come out this year and had performed, like if Schuster had come out and pitched like he had pitched in the Cape or Franklin had hit like he, like kind of projected as he was going to be as a recruit coming out of high school and he really hit well, these are two guys that probably wouldn't have been available when the Braves were going to be picking. So, in that sense, there's upside, but they're in, they're, it's not the same sort of upside as like, you know, like sort of projectability of like a high, a high school prep arm or, you know, even like a projectable frame outfielder from, you know, the prep ranks or like a younger guy, a younger college guy that you think could put on some more mass to kind of throw a little bit harder or hit the ball a little further. It's a different kind of sort of upside, I guess is the best way I know how to say it, even though that kind of implies something I, I don't mean. In Schuster, you have a, a big lefty that has a fastball that he's added a significant amount of velocity to a changeup that I like a lot, and I really look for that out of the lefty these days, simply because that kind of you know being able to get those opposite-handed hitters out is a big deal, and the, a good changeup goes a long way towards that. On the downside, not sure sure on the breaking ball. We don't know about the track record as a starter because we haven't seen him throw as a starter with these types of velocity numbers for a long period of time. And again, if he, we had seen that over the course of this year, it's very likely he would not have been available when we picked in the first round. Then we have Franklin, who's kind of a better, a greater than the sum of his parts type guy. Seems to, he has a lot of good instincts on the field, runs pretty well, you know, hits pretty well. The power seems to be the question mark with him. He also, is, other, aside from the skiing injury, he has been kind of dinged up over the course of his college year, career. And he's never really lived up to those kind of lofty expectations of him as a, as a hitter in at Michigan, but again, you know, is he just one of those guys that maybe if you measure everything, it nothing really jumps off the page, but when you put it all together, he ends up being a really good baseball player? It's very possible. Strider feels like that kind of, they realized that they were going to try to go over slot in the fifth round with Bryce Elder, which Dana Brown, the scouting coordinator for the Braves, he was pretty clear that that, that was going to take more than slot value to sign Bryce at that pick, so they went ahead and they snatch up Spencer Strider, who I think Matt and I both agree seems most likely to be a reliever. Um, we don't really know. Guys coming off injuries, it's really hard to project for sure as to what they're going to be and kind of what kind of pitchers are going to end up being used. Is he is just a, like a middle relief guy? Can he be more than that? Sure. We just don't know because we haven't seen him come back from injury enough, but that seems like they were trying to save money at that spot, so I don't want to necessarily overstate the importance of that particular player or pick. But it does seem like they're trying to save money to sign Bryce Alder, who seems like a pretty well established pitcher with, you know, he was pitching on Friday nights for, for Texas. The secondary seemed really good. He seems to be very well liked by very, like, very, like, between his Texas coaches and scouts around the league. Everything that I've heard is that they really like this guy. Um, maybe not for like the fastball velocity, but you know, as like a sinker, you know, a sinker ball pitcher with some really good secondaries to make things, to make them things happen. You know, for your fifth round pick in this particular draft, you could do a lot worse. It's hard to talk about this class though without kind of being reminded that the situation that's around us is that we were kind of robbed of a lot of the picks that we, Matt and I, like the, the thing that we really love talking about aren't the first few picks because it seems like everyone talks about the, the top three round picks. Like those are the only picks that matter when we've been around long enough to know that those day two and day three picks that normally happen in a normal draft, that's where the Braves really have been making their hay and where you can get a lot of depth and a lot of really interesting stories going in the minor leagues. And we were kind of robbed of that this year. And it's, it's sad in a lot of ways because again, generally I think this front office as it constituted, it seems like it seems like from two drafts now that early in the draft, they want to go with safe picks that kind of, they know these guys are going to get to the, 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 go through the system relatively quickly, a lot of college guys, 
but they do seem to know how to kind of scout the right kinds of guys for day two and day three and how to get those guys signed and into the organization so that you can fill out your organ, your organization. And unfortunately, you know, given the draft structure, we were, we were not allowed to have that. However, we do have a different system in place is that all the guys that weren't drafted in those five rounds are now undrafted free agents. Now, a lot of these guys are going to be going back to school, but we also have some guys who are going to be signing. Now, the trick here is that it's not just a free-for-all. You can pay them however much you want to, and it's like full-on free agency. The, the most amount a, a team can pay for any undrafted free agent is $20,000. So ultimately, the decision doesn't come down to money. It comes down to, well, it doesn't come down to that amount of money. It comes down to whether or not that player thinks they can go back to school and be drafted next year and make more money and or if they feel like the baseball is going to be a career for them, and then ultimately how they feel about the organization they're going into, and that would be including like considerations like playing time and you know how they feel like they could be developed as a player, et cetera, et cetera. Now we've, we're only about thirty six hours or so into this whole process of uh, doing the undrafted free agents, and if we, I wish I could tell you what tendencies the Braves would have or what this would look like, but honestly. Matt and I are both kind of new to what this is going to look like because this is the first time we've actually really had a period of like this after a draft to this extent. So, but, but the Braves have signed some players uh, and I will freely admit that I have never heard of any of these players in my life. So I want to throw it to the guy who actually does know what's going on with these players and kind of who's, who's signed and what he likes about them. So Matt, tell us about these guys that the Braves have signed so far in undrafted free agency. So the Braves have signed uh, three players at this point. Uh, biggest name is probably going to be Landon Stevens, the, I guess you want to call him an infielder out of Miami of Ohio in the MAC. He's hard to really give a true position to because I don't think you're dra- not drafting him, but you're signing him to play. I think he's a pure utility man. He's played all over the field and he's got a lot of defensive versatility. He's got a pretty solid bat as a uh, utility type of player, and I think that's what the draw with him is. And I want to pull up his stats quick um, to go over them, but I, I don't think he really excelled at anything as much as he's just a solid player with a lot of versatility, which this front office does really value. Um, and here are the stats. Uh, um, he's hit... At least uh, 287 in each of his four years at Miami of Ohio. So at least 287. His OPS marks have been um, 815, 856, 962, 965, um, going from 17 on through this year. He's never hit more than nine home runs in a year, which came last year. But he's the guy who does have some really good doubles power instead of over-the-fence power. He's not a speedster, but he's a guy who knows how to take a base with the speed that he has based on his instincts. He's a guy who, if you look at his defensive positions, he's played everywhere. If you include his time in summer ball, not in the Cape League, but in one of the secondary summer leagues, he's played Everywhere in the infield except shortstop, and everywhere in the outfield except center field. He also obviously hasn't caught, but this is a guy that's going to be able to play at five of the eight positions, at least to some extent. Uh, he's a guy that other teams were chasing. He is a high-character player, and I had a parent of another player that... Um, sent me a message after he signed and said that they were happy that he signed, that he was getting a chance. He's definitely one of those guys who sticks out as a good person as well as a good player. He offers that versatility, and he's not a guy that's going to hurt you with his bat. So he's definitely a nice addition, and I know for sure that there were other teams chasing him. So he was the first signing to be announced, and, well, he's not the biggest name out there. He's definitely a nice addition to the organization. The next name that was actually added to the organization was probably one of the, probably the most intriguing name of the group. 
and that would be Bryson Horn from Columbus State. He's a big first baseman. Uh, the thing with him is he was in his first year in Columbus State after coming from uh, Juco, Georgia Highlands. Uh, I think he's originally from Florida, and then he spent the last two years in Georgia. Uh, he's a lefty, big guy. He really saw his power take a significant jump this year. Now, it's not like he wasn't hitting fairly well in the past but he wasn't really showing a ton of power. This spring, he ended up with six homers in 98 at-bats, following eight in 357 career at-bats before this year. He's got decent enough speed for the position as a first baseman, and it's probably going to slow down a tick because he's going to fill in that body a little bit more because he wasn't a senior. So uh, he's definitely... An intriguing guy with the bat if the power is real. Obviously, we're talking a very short sample size. We're not talking about Division One, but there's something to like with him and maybe see what the Braves can develop with him. He's the kind of guy that, if we're having a normal draft, along with Stevens, probably get drafted on day three, maybe in that rounds 13 through 22 range just because there is something to like about him and then with the third pick the Braves ended up with a pitcher named Carter Linton out of uh, Tusculum in Tennessee he is a smaller guy he's just six foot 195 he gets his fastball up to 95 but it sits more low 90s Uh, has a slider and a curve and a change up. Um, really, the slider curve is more of a uh, slurvy pitch instead of tr- two true separate pitches. Uh, he definitely says more reliever to me. Uh, he might have been a later day three pick than the other two, but he's got some potential as a relief arm, even if he might end up getting some starts. It probably will be a guy that it's a candidate to possibly get some starts in the low minors just because the Braves are lacking numbers in the low minors. But uh, those are the three signings that we've seen so far from the Braves at this point. And there you have it. I will say that, I, again, I don't know anything about these particular players. Uh, I did get asked a few times today, and to be perfectly honest, uh, these guys were not that on my radar. Although, fun fact, uh, it does appear that the Braves have a lot of interest in what's going on in the Tusculum uh, baseball program because Devin Watts was drafted out of the uh, out of Tusculum for the Braves. Uh, didn't quite make it to the major leagues with the Braves, but, you know, as a minor league guy and a you know a guy that we followed for a while, it's nice to see that a repeat name in terms of the college from a small place like that. So... Hopefully it will, uh, things will work out a little bit better for Linton, but I, I am heartened by the fact that we, that Matt seems to find some sort of values in the guys that the Braves are picking up. It is worth mentioning that because for the amount of money, you're not going to be getting like kind of these like second and third round guys who didn't get picked. They're just not going to sign for this kind of money. These are, these are those kinds of guys that are going to go to Juco's. Those are going to go and enter into the draft in next year. You're just not going to be able to sign them for that, but you can get some really interesting value for this amount of money. And the one thing I will say, too, is that this does not comprise the entire class. Now, Matt and I were kind of like arguing a little bit about this beforehand. We're just not sure how long that there's going to be real activity on this market. It's pretty clear that, you know, once school starts back up, that, you know, a lot of these guys are going to make their decisions to go back to school or not. But how active this, you know, undrafted free agent period is, is very much to be determined. And I know that with this many names, Scouts are just like calling a lot of guys and, you know, with the types of guys that would be willing to take this amount of money to join pros, they probably have their, their pick of, you know, teams that they wanted, they could, they could go for. And I'm sure a lot of teams want to figure out, want to add guys at these, at these rates. But we just don't know for sure as to kind of how long this is going to take, how long these guys are going to take to make their decisions and, you know, what goes into these decisions? Are, are guys going to be trying to, are there going to be a lot more team guys trying to go to JUCOs? Are you know how much eligibility is going to be granted to which players and why? And you know if it's worth it to them to do so. There's a lot of things that these players have to consider. So 
Go ahead, Matt. We've already seen quite a few changes. Uh, Harold Cole, the shortstop from Georgia Premier Academy that I was very high on, didn't end up getting the amount that he was looking for, and he's announced that he's taking a postgraduate year staying at the Georgia Premier Academy. He was a North Carolina commit, and Georgia Premier Academy is not a normal high quote unquote high school they're an academy status so taking the post grad year will not affect his ability to play for them and they've had other players that have done this so that's one guy that's in a situation uh the university of florida's lost two of their best recruits in the class who both happen to be pitchers uh which is not shocking considering they happen to return two of the best starting pitchers in the class, in this draft class, that were both juniors and widely expected to be going pro and now both returning to campus. Uh, Jackson Nizua, who is, was going there, is now going to uh, Florida State. And LeBaron Johnson Jr. is not decided on where he's going to go. So we've already seen some pretty big names in terms of recruiting and the draft because all three of those guys were significant enough prospects that if any of them went in rounds three through five, nobody would have batted an eye that they belonged in there. So we're going to see a lot more movement because scholarships, playing time, all that stuff, roster spots are really now only for the first time starting to become a little bit more clear to all these different colleges and all these different players. And I think decisions are being made right now across the country on from the colleges and then from the players on what's going to end up happening from there. Yeah, and as those dominoes fall, we're going to do our absolute best best to make sure we keep you updated. Uh, in addition to, you can follow me on Twitter at Leprechaun with a K. You can follow Matt on Twitter again at Matt Powers Thirty One. Um, you can also go on the on Talking Chop where we do have a signing tracker and the normal signing tracker that we've been Gary's po- been posting it every year since twenty fifteen. Um, is, you know, you, we just track the picks, we track how much they sign for, and et cetera, et cetera. And in a 40 round draft, this is a very useful, for, for five picks, we've tried to expand its usefulness, uh, beyond just five picks. We're also keeping track of all the undrafted free, uh, undrafted free, uh, free agents on there as well. So when you're looking at that signing tracker, you're not just looking at the, the five, the four draft picks that the Braves, that the Braves made, but instead, you're also gonna have that, those undrafted, Guys who, uh, that way at least have a, a one centralized place for some basic information on all of them. Uh, that's pretty much all we have for you guys tonight. This actually went up significantly longer than I thought it was going to, but I am quite pleased that we got to cover as much ground as we did. Thank you all so much for all the support. Uh, if you want to continue listening to the podcast, make sure you look for the Talking Chop stream, whether it be on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Stitcher whatever your preferred podcast purveyor if we are not on it please let us know and if you know if but if you look on you know generally a lot of the big ones you're going to find the stream and not only you're going to find the road to atlanta podcast you're also going to find the talking shop podcast of which i am a few a a frequent guest host slash co-host slash you know just kind of personality on there uh but brad runs the show over there and he does a great job and that's where you can kind of get a lot of the major league stuff too and we're certainly going to be updating that relatively soon thanks again so much guys for all the support until next time we'll see you on the road